future human visionaries. What tomorrow knows today. Produced in association with the V&A. Welcome to Visionaries, a podcast dedicated to futurological thinkers. We seek out people who are reimagining innovation in their field and ask them to apply their intelligence to emerging trends. Keep listening to hear the evolving story of their ideas. Ken Arnold is the head of public programs at the Wellcome Trust. He manages exhibitions at the Wellcome Collection that explore connections between art, medicine and everyday life. He describes the changing role of the institution amid a fast-evolving digital culture. I find it uh, interesting, uh, surprising maybe, that we do very little in our first six years about this idea of the future-shaping ethos of science. Uh, In our programming, uh, as I started thinking about this question, I realized, maybe this isn't too surprising, that in our live events, in our talks, our discussions, our debates, uh, the drama, the performances that we put on, that is the place where we have done uh, more things about the future. Uh, In our exhibitions, much less. And therefore, I suppose in a very obvious way, it seems to me that it's much easier to talk about the future than show the future. And as I thought about what exhibitions we've done, I really could only come up with one example that was explicitly about the future. Uh, It was an exhibition that was on here last summer, I think. It was called Superhuman. The subtitle was uh, Human Enhancement from 600 BCE to 2050. Uh, And I'm absolutely certain that's the only bit of title in the five years that I've been running Welcome Collection where the future has crept in. The last section of this exhibition was called The Future of Humanity, and its main focus was about 12, maybe 15 television screens, each with uh, a single speaker, uh, and that speaker addressed their thoughts about the future. Interestingly, that part of the exhibition was itself a sort of event that wasn't an exhibition, I mean, I know video creeps into every exhibition, but it does feel to me as though even there it was more an event packaged within an exhibition. And then we also had a timeline of uh, predictive statements from, I think we drew it, I looked up, from the US National Science Foundation's Conference on Converging Technologies. Uh, To be entirely honest, I don't think one needed to go to all of those experts to find out the sorts of rather optimistic Uh, bland statements that uh, they seem to come out with, but um, that was our attempt to to look at the future through their eyes. It was an exhibition that encompassed futurology, but I thought that the the genius of the show was that both literally and metaphorically all of that future speculation was cast in the shadow of a very small Greek statue. And that was the figure of Icarus that the British Museum were kind enough to lend to us. So even in this one exhibition where we have stuck our neck out and tried to look over the horizon, it seemed to me that the interesting thing we'd managed to do was to put that into the context of, I guess, an ancient reminder of the perils of projecting the future uh, too close to the sun. So I guess... Thinking about that exhibition, I was struck by a a very sharp contrast, it seemed to me, and I wonder whether this is generally true, that within that exhibition, the science and technology was almost entirely upbeat and optimistic. Of course, society had problems, uh, but they could be tackled and solved through technical solutions. It's a very powerful idea, and, and that sang out from the exhibition. The arts 
which was very much part of the exhibition, were almost entirely drawn to darker and more pessimistic sides of thinking about the future. And I, I know that's a terrible cliche, but I, I just was suddenly struck by, and I've worked with Sandra and various other folk on bringing science and art together. I, I never quite thought of it in these terms, that maybe part of the power of bringing science and art together is precisely to do with the potency of those different moods that there is a creative spark uh, and a creative misunderstanding because optimism mixed with pessimism uh, is not a natural fit. So in that exhibition and in many of the projects, I've been much less interested in the notion that there might be some easy middle way between science and art, between optimism and pessimism. Uh, and at best, I think what can come out in terms of what we're thinking about here, in terms of future speculation uh, is a complicated freshness, a what if that maybe is partly accompanied with a smile and partly accompanied with a frown. So I just want to reiterate that I think generally uh, exhibitions aren't a good place to speculate about the future. Uh, I suppose fundamentally exhibitions seem to me to be about what's already gone. I think you struggle to do anything in exhibitions that's more up-to-date than things that have been drawn from the very recent past. And I have one final thought. I have a really strong, you know, this is almost an emotional sense, really, that the future in the future of thinking needs to grapple with a very serious problem I think we all face, which is too much and too quick. Uh, and somehow, if thinking is to carry on being broad and interesting and imaginative, then we need to create chances to think more slowly, to think about less, and profoundly to think in unconnected ways. So I suppose I'm ending with a plea that future thinking should be slower, should be sparser, and often should be unconnected. Thank you. Karen Verschuren of the Belgian art institution Z33 asked how future planning affects the policy of large cultural institutions like the Wellcome Trust. We're a scientific organisation, so evidence and data feels as though it's at the core of, of what we do. So I, I'm pretty confident that we're one of the best or one of the most uh, evaluated venues in the country which maybe doesn't make us any wiser than anybody else about what goes on here, but we certainly have lots of statistics. The, in a funny way, I think the public side of the Wellcome Trust, which includes Wellcome Collection, but also many other things that we fund to happen elsewhere, my sense is maybe we are uh, further ahead in trying to think about what it would mean to measure success than on the science side. I think measuring the effectiveness of science is a notoriously difficult. I mean, there are measures, of course, about who else, what other scientists quote your work, and, and the citation indexes, etc. But uh, it's a favorite story of any historian of science to point out that almost all the greatest advances in science, uh, when they were first produced, looked uh, as though they wouldn't be funded by whatever organization was around at the time. And certainly, the scientists who produced them would then 
uh, at their next proposal be ignored. Uh, and like many scientific organizations, I think for a long time we felt that we were funding projects that had already happened. The round of application for funding is uh, often driven by asking to do something that you know is going to be successful and one of the best ways of knowing that it's going to be successful is to have already done it. So again, very, being very cynical about this, there is a way in which science funding can work on the idea of being funded for something that's happened in order to enable you to do something that is more risky. Getting, uh, I mean, that's, that's uh, one way of looking at it. And actually, increasingly, in, on the science side here, there is a sense that we maybe should fund individuals and be less determined by what they immediately say they will get out of their research and, and have more faith in our funding. Less than, I suppose, a, a sense in which we want to know in advance what might happen, and more we want to know that these are interesting people who have big ideas, and we have the feeling that if we give them money and work collaboratively with them, that they will end up producing interesting results. So in that way, almost a, a more relaxed framework around evaluation. One of the strange things about evaluation is that people seem to forget that it's actually research. Uh, we do it almost because we have to prove something as a sort of defensive measure. So increasingly here, I, I'm interested in us doing quick and dirty evaluation that really produces interesting ideas and that gives us a sense of what's going on. How will the deployment of expertise within large institutions change in the coming years? Almost everything is interdisciplinary and almost everything we do involves more than one expert. Uh, is that we're, Wellcome Collection I think is a great champion of the role of expertise and discipline, uh, but we're allergic to the notion that for any topic there is only one form of expertise. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the way we do that is by deliberately picking topics that feel as though they don't quite fit in one place and not quite in another. And what that manufactures, I think, is a set of people, all of whom feel as though they've got something to contribute, all of whom are experts, but none of whom entirely own topic and therefore in the end our expertise is how to bring experts together uh, and that feels to me as though increasingly that is what the role of curatorial expertise is uh, and it, it I don't think it should be a challenge to what disciplines do I you know the nightmare for welcome collection would be that everyone is interdisciplinary because then we wouldn't have anyone serious and sensible to invite to come and do a project with us because they'd all be as hopelessly muddled as we are. So there is a way in which interdisciplinarity, I suppose, can seems to me as though can only ever exist as a minority sport. And the real core of interdisciplinarity, which shouldn't be for everyone, there should be most people who aren't. Uh, otherwise, I, I think the, 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 the model doesn't work. Uh, but after that, the experts should have control of their bit and then the expert of experts, the expert to put them together, is the people that, that then curate the show. Should museums seek to simulate cultural experiences digitally? I think some of the most exciting things that happen to me in public spaces, it feels like it's just me and 
something that's triggered it and maybe it's a triangle, maybe there's an idea there. And I think now increasingly there's a sense in which that's not enough. I should immediately be on my phone and I should tweet that and then that should be retweeted okay, and then there should be okay. yeah. 10, you know, a, a real experience should result in 10,000 other people knowing about that experience. Okay. And, and it's not that I'm against that, that that's no, fantastic, no, no, no. but actually you know, maybe one of the values of museums is, is that actually we don't have to do that. It's, it's atomized individual experiences mm. that I, I feel maybe are slightly getting lost in this excitement mm. that we're all talking to everybody all the time. This recording took place at an event convened by the V&A with support from Z33, the Welcome Collection, and the Arts and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by Future Human in Dalston, London. For more episodes of the Future Human podcast, visit iTunes or soundcloud.com.